Coming live from Bethel, Washington, USA is our guest this morning. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through their industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have Bob Wolverton, leadership and executive coach, speaker, and he runs his own leadership training company, Top Tier Leadership Training. Welcome to the show, Bob. Well, thank you, AJ. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Although you can see by looking through my back window, it's not morning here. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And it's, it's such a wonderful thing that technology is. It, it can bring, you know, two places together, living Absolutely. in different time zones, but sharing a lot in common, especially about ideas, about inspiration, about leadership, anything about that can change our lives. And so you are an expert about leadership, Bob, but it has been a big journey for you to understand that. So my first question to you, uh, Bob, is that, you know, when we talk about motivation for employees, my first question to you is what motivated you to go for a BA and MA at 52? <laughs> well, it, actually, that was longer. That was the drive for that was longer than just you know, turning age 52. In essence, I had been in leadership positions for a number of years and I wanted to be the best leader I could possibly be. It's one of those things, you know, as you, you go through life and, you know, whether you play sports or, you know, whatever you do, you want to be the best that you can be individually. And so I was reading leadership books and going to leadership classes and trying to improve. And I just felt like I wasn't getting what I needed. And then I basically had an invitation to attend, to go back to college at age 52 and uh, got my bachelor's degree and turned around and got my master's degree, both, both in management and leadership. And then I became a leadership instructor while I was working on my master's degree. But it's the same sort of motivation I think that everybody has. We all want to do what we do very well. You know, I think that everybody comes to work with the intention to do a, put in a good day's work. And but sometimes we just don't know how, you know, we, we do the reading and so on and maybe have a, a mentor. But a lot of times in the workplace, even good leadership's not mentored in the workplace. And so it's a real struggle for a lot of people, because I know when I got promoted, I, I took an interview process and congratulations, you're promoted. And then I'm like, OK, now what? <laughs> you know, it's like it's like sink or swim, figure it out on your own. And I basically spent, you know, decades trying to figure it out on my own and ultimately did. And now I teach other people so they can benefit from my experience so I can shorten their learning curve and help them become better leaders early in their career. Right, Bob. Right. Uh, see, your leadership journey, it's taken a bit of a time for you to understand, but you are the lucky one who understood it because when earlier you were a numbers-driven, data-only style manager. You have already done your graduation from FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia. And while doing your job, uh, you were not so affectionate as you yourself uh, say about yourself, and then you were known as RoboBob. What does <laughs> RoboBob mean? You, you picked up on that, I see. Uh, well, that was basically early days of my leadership positions. So this was going back to the late 1980s. And every time a class had the term leadership in the title of the class, I was attending every class I could. Mm -hmm. 
But what we have learned about leadership studies back from the 80s and leader, the study of leadership is relatively new in the academic environment. But the classes that I was taking back in the 80s were all about planning, organizing, directing, controlling. But what we know about those today is that's not leadership, that's management. And because I was going to those classes, wanting to do the best that I could do, I was a great leader, but it was all numbers driven. It was control driven. And that's where my coworkers basically gave me the name of RoboBob because I was all about spreadsheets. I was all about statistics. I was, you know, all about the budget. You know, it was, it was numbers. Everything I did was numbers driven. When we talk about being empathetic with your followers, being vulnerable with your followers. That wasn't me. I was more of the old uh, militaristic style of leadership because I was just about numbers. So that's how I got that nickname. But fortunately, I learned what true leadership is and I got rid of that nickname. <laughs> but I'm glad you picked up on that. Right, right. You see, I just want to bring out the person and the leader that one is and also about the fact that uh, you got to realize about yourself not just through your own eyes but through the eyes of people whose uh, work life depend on you and who view you as not just as a manager but also as a leader and that is what i wanted to bring uh, out and you know what from robo bob you went went with went to that you know that that particular your colleague who wrote on linkedin that he's one of the best leaders that i've ever had the privilege of working for it's not an easy journey you may make it sound easy bob but then that not leads a lot of transformation so my understanding for our understanding just to understand how did you know that you needed to transform you were in a uh, in a police job, you could have still be what you wanted to be. And that also requires a certain degree of, you know, if I understand, you are the police captain at city of Bothell, Washington. So you could have been the way you were and still uh, may not have had to think the way uh, organizations think in today's time. But you wanted to be a leader and not just a manager. What led you to come to this sort of a thinking that you went for, you know, understanding more about leadership and less about management? Well, I think I was fortunate in the fact that I was open to feedback. And it was interesting that you mentioned that because even after, you know, I got my master's degree, I had become a leadership instructor and had some years of experience. And I felt that I was beginning to gain some leadership, uh, some leadership success. I did a uh, 360 degree review. In essence, I put out an anonymous survey to all the people that I was responsible for, that, you know, my followers. And there were categories of leadership that I felt that I was doing pretty good. And there were other areas I felt that I still had room for improvement. But when I, it was interesting because when I got this survey back from my followers, it was just the opposite. The things that I thought I was doing really well, the survey said, oh no, you still have work to do. And the other areas where I thought I needed work the survey is going, oh, you're doing fine in that area. So that idea that you mentioned of, of basically being open to feedback is so critically important because if we look in a mirror at ourselves and, and we evaluate ourselves as to what kind of leader we are, and let's say on a scale of one to 10, we think we're doing pretty good. We've got a lot of experience. And so we'd rate ourselves an eight. But if the people you're responsible for 
if they rate you at a four, well, that gap between their perception of a four and what you believe that you're an eight, that gap is a problem. And so what you want to do is get that closer. And the only way you're going to get that closer is to find out what do the people I'm responsible for? What do they truly believe? Because if they think it's a, if they think that I'm a four, then I'm not doing my job properly. I'm not leading them properly. So I need to figure out it's, it's my culpability to figure out what do I need to do better? And I think that's, you know, the early days of the feedback I was getting, obviously there was a gap. And so that gap was telling me, I need, there's something I'm missing. I need to learn more. And so to answer that even plays back to your earlier question. That's what I really needed to do was figure out what is it that I'm missing, you know, and what, and how can I get my ratings from my followers, get them to trust me and to believe in me. And it's, it's not an easy answer. You know, I, I like to think that it, um, that I can explain it simply, but it is like a big jigsaw puzzle. There's a lot of pieces that all fit together and there's no one piece that's more important than the other piece. They all play together to make that big picture of leadership. So in the life of a leader, in the life of a manager, there are so many pieces that before you put the pieces together for everybody else, you need to put it together for yourself and to understand whether one is a manager or one is a uh, leader. And then actually that is where the feedback works. And that is why you took that feedback well. And then that is why you are today a leadership instruction for the Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission for the past 10 years. And you are also running your own company. And you train so many people in leadership positions actually to be you know, not just a manager, but also actually leader in the true, true sense and it is so much required uh, bob when we have uh, you know uh, these issues of uh, great resignation when people are not finding their work-life balance there is so much of toxicity being talked about in workplaces and there is quite uh, quite quitting happening at the same time because people don't have an option to move out amidst all these things that is why we are talking to you about motivation a leader's job is uh, is to motivate people say but then people say that employees also need to be motivated by themselves that's they should be motivated and that is why we are talking about do motivation do employees bring it or does the workplace create it what is your initial thoughts on this particular thing well it's interesting that you asked that question because uh, i teach a segment on theories of human motivation that came around completely by accident one of my colleagues and I, we were setting expectations for a division that we were responsible for. And in the first draft copy, I had written in there that the supervisor supervisors needed to provide inspirational motivation. And my colleague is going, no, 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 no. We can't provide motivation for people. They have to come to work already motivated to put in a good day's work. And so this started a debate between the two of us for quite a while. And then it has grown into this uh, segment that I do on theories of human motivation. But the interesting thing is, is that when people come to work for us, they generally will come to work for us because what we do, if we publicize what we do very well, is that it has meaning to them. In essence, that they're contributing to something bigger than themselves. And that's where true uh, intrinsic motivation comes from because we all want to be part of a community. We all want to have meaning in our lives. And we can get that in the workplace if we're contributing to something meaningful. And you watch some of the more successful corporations in around the world, and 
Uh, basically, they are creating something that's so important or, or so significant or so new, so you know, on the edge of technology that people want to be part of that. They want to make that thing happen. They want to contribute to that. And so that's where they come to work and they're excited to come to work. Well, that's what I say is the employee's responsibility is to make sure that whatever resonates with their heart and soul, that we have that. Or if whatever we do doesn't resonate with them, whatever resonates with them might be somewhere else. But if what we do resonates with their heart and soul, well, then we've got to help keep all of our people on track. So even in our, in our organizations, we might have engineers, we might have scientists, we might have chemists. I mean, we might have a whole variety of people that contribute to what we're, what we're creating. And at the same time, we're going to have people that are doing accounts payable and accounts receivable and doing all the paperwork and so on. So everybody has a different piece of the puzzle, but we need to keep them engaged into what they're contributing to and what we as a group or what we as a company are accomplishing and where we're going in the future. And that's the responsibility of the organization. So that's where I say the organization has a responsibility to create an environment that stimulates motivation and keeps people connected with what they're contributing to, that the bigger purpose that they're contributing to. And then the perp and then the part on the employee themselves is just to make sure that what they are passionate about connects with what we do as an organization. But when we break it down into the class part is of theories of human motivation, there's um, six different theories of human motivation. There's expectancy theory, there's needs theory, and that's probably the biggest driver right there is, is we as human beings, we have a hierarchy of needs and we're trying to fulfill those needs. And so when we as an employer, we can recognize where the employee is on that hierarchy scale and we can make sure that we're connecting the employee at the right level at the right time, uh, that really helps stimulate employee engagement. Uh, then there's outcomes theory, whether they get intrinsic rewards and extrinsic rewards. And obviously the intrinsic rewards, that's the most valuable. That's when they come to work for you with their blood, sweat and tears because they believe in what you're doing. I just had a class last week where a person in the class had left one employer for another employer that pays way less money. He took a huge pay cut, but he's so much happier at his new place of employment because of what he's contributing to. And that's where I, I talk about in my classes, money is a short term motivator. You know, we can give somebody a raise and then maybe they go out and they, you know, they buy something else. They buy a bigger house, they buy a second car and then it doesn't take long. And they're looking around like, OK, I need more money now, <laughs> you know, because if they're coming to work for you just for the money, well, that's a short term motivator. But if they're coming to work because they believe what you believe, in essence, what they're contributing to that higher purpose, that's that true intrinsic motivation. And then there's equity theory in the workplace. And now this is the employer's responsibility also because our employees are constantly doing um, cognitive calculus. In essence, what they're doing is they're, compa they're comparing how much work they're doing, how hard they're working compared to their coworker and assuming they're getting paid the same amount of money. But if I perceive that I'm working way harder than this person next to me, then I'll get to a point where I'm going, why am I working so hard? I'm getting the same amount of money this person's making and they're not working near as hard as I am. So why am I working so hard? And there's a whole bunch of ways that employees restore equity. And so I might go to my boss and say, hey, you need to you know, have them pick it up because this is our expectation. Or I might try to restore equity by saying, 
you know what? I'm going to show up less. I'm going to start calling in sick. So absenteeism, and in, or I should say an increase in absenteeism can be a red flag warning that you've got equity theory issues going on in your workplace. And then of course that coaching part. And this is where your guest, uh, I think was a week or two ago, you had a guest, uh, what was her name? Jocelyn. And she was talking about yes. the great resignation. Yes. And um, she was saying that she focuses on more people centric leadership. And that's exactly what I do. When I, when I heard her say that, I go, wow, that's exactly what I do. I just, I use different words than she does. Cause I've got three, uh, let's see what I call three responsibilities that come with every single promotion. And it doesn't matter if it's your first promotion or if you get promoted all the way to CEO of the organization, everybody has these three responsibilities. Now these three responsibilities are great, especially for new leaders, because you can put these into place today. You can, you know, start working on them on Monday and put them into place and you will see immediate results. Well, I should say you will see better results because all of these changes we talk about, they do take time, but you can implement it right away. Now there's other roles and responsibilities that come with your promotion. There's tasks that you have to do. There might be new reports that you have to do. But when we talk about these three responsibilities, these three responsibilities are exactly what Jocelyn was talking about, being people centric in your leadership. And I can go into those too if we have time. I don't want to. Yes, I, yes, Bob. Yeah, you, take your, you, you take your time. We <laughs> always do not save the best for the last. We will do it when we can. So take your time. No problem at all. Time is, you know, money. But right now, your <laughs> information is much more better than money. And money is not the biggest money way to all the time. I'm just, you know, at the big. But you carry on. Don't worry. Okay. Well, this is your show. And I could talk about this for a long, long, long time. So I don't want to run away with your show. Okay. So let's talk about those three responsibilities that come with every promotion. So most of us, when we first get promoted, and I'll just use the example of sales. Let's say you're the great salesperson. You, you outsell everybody every quarter, everybody on your team and so on. So you get promoted. Okay. Well, now you're the sales manager. Well, you knew how to be a great salesperson. But do you know how to be a great manager, you know, a great sales manager? And then maybe you do that prep relatively well and they promote you, you know, to be in district manager and so on like that. So now your responsibilities of leadership are increasing, but have you learned how to do it? And that, that's what I was saying earlier. That was my experience. I got promoted and it's kind of like figure it out on your own. But one of the biggest employee complaints is micromanagement. And right. I think the re reason that micromanagement occurs is because we were really great at the job, the line level job we did. I call that being the technician. And if you look at it from a carpenter standpoint, you know, I know how many nails to hammer and how many holes to drill. And then I get promoted to be in site supervisor. Well, if I go back to the carpenter and I'm telling them exactly how many nails to hammer and how many holes to drill, they're going to get upset because that's micromanagement. Whereas if I focus on the results and I go, build me a house or build me a wall or whatever the outcome or the result is that I'm expecting from you and let them use their ingenuity and their creativity to accomplish that outcome, that eliminates micromanagement. And that's why my number one responsibility that comes with every promotion is to focus on results, focus on the outcomes, tell people what the outcomes are that they are expected to achieve or the outcomes that they're expected to accomplish and then get out of their way. Now, you've got to stand by them because they might need a little guidance. They might need a little rudder tap to get back on track. Or you can use that coaching uh, perspective that you would come through uh, psychological empowerment, you know, to keep them on track and keep them engaged. Uh, but you got to let them do the work. 
So that's the number one rule is focus on results, focus on outcomes. Now, same sort of thing is that as you move up in the organization, even at the CEO level, the CEO is focusing on results and they're focusing on outcomes. But even in middle-sized um, middle size organizations, I have seen leaders that are basically at the CEO level and they are great CEOs and they're great at focusing on outcomes and focusing on the results and, and focusing on the future of where we're going and providing that vision. That's a whole nother story uh, there. That's extremely important is providing the, the vision. But, but occasionally I've seen them fall back into their comfort zone of being the old technician that they used to be 15 or 20 years ago and giving directions. I, I want this number of this sort of thing, rather than focusing on the outcome. So at any level, no matter where you are, got to focus on the outcome. Now, rule number two, when Jocelyn was talking in your, in your show the other day about being people-centric, you've got to change your mindset as you get promoted. And I see a lot of times what people will say is, I'm in charge of whatever division, or I'm in charge of whatever team. And they've got this, I'm in charge mindset. You got to shift out of that. In essence, you're responsible. You're responsible for that team. You're responsible for that division. Or as a CEO, you're responsible for the entire organization. And when you start thinking about it that way, that's when you become people-centric. And so when you start focusing on the fact that I'm responsible for the success of these people on my team, or I'm responsible for the success of these people in my organization, then you start looking at it from that people-centric mindset. and that's where people start to trust you, that you have your, uh, that you have their best interest at heart and that you give them the benefit of that. And you are all about their success because their success is your success because you're focusing on outcomes. So the number two rule is to, as a, as a new leader, is facilitate the success of your people. Make sure they have the knowledge, the tools, the skills to do what they need to do so they can be successful. Because like I said, their success is your success. So that's rule number two. And then rule number three, again, in this responsibility mindset, is that you're responsible for their welfare. You're responsible for making sure the workplace is a safe work environment. Uh, you're responsible to make sure that the workplace is absent of bullies and absence of sexual harassment and uh, anything that can get in the way or harm your employees. Now, here's the interesting thing is that when you get into this mindset, and this is the thing that I would, that I encourage all my students to do, when you get into the mindset and then you don't get the outcome that you expect, say um, one of your employees isn't successful, or particularly if one of your employees gets hurt or gets injured somewhere on the job site, that I would hope that your first mindset, rather than pointing the finger at a people problem, is thinking to yourself as the leader, what could I have done to prevent this from occurring? Or what should I have done to prevent this from occurring? And figuring out what you can do differently in the future to make sure that you safeguard the, the welfare of your employees, that you um, facilitate their success. And so that's where that uh, um, people-centric leadership comes from by changing your mindset that I'm responsible for these people, I'm responsible for their success. And then when something goes uh, awry, doesn't go to plan, that your first thought is, what could I have done? And this is like I was saying, even in, in the interviews uh, that I was talking about earlier, the feedback that I was getting, when there was a gap between when my followers were calling me RoboBob, I'm going, I'm missing something. There's something that I need to do differently. That was my culpability. 
And so those are three rules that go with everybody along the way. But the higher up you go in the organization, there's another aspect too. As, as you get up in the organization is you have to provide the direction of that organization. And this relates back to motivation. So as like the CEO or at the executive level, what do we aspire to accomplish as an organization? Where are we going? So my definition of leadership is the capacity to translate vision into reality. Now that's a very simple definition, but it's not easy to do. First, you have the vision. What do we aspire to accomplish? What do we aspire to become as an organization? And maybe that's five years, seven years out. And then what you have to do is take that picture in your mind's eye Write that out in words so when other people read your vision statement, they get that same picture in their head like, this is what we aspire to accomplish, this is what we aspire to become. Okay, now what you have to do is you have to reverse engineer that and then figure out what are the goals and objectives, what human and capital resources do I need? And that's a relatively complex uh, process. But the idea is that everybody's focused on the end goal, that everybody's rowing in the same direction. And even though that they're in, in accounts payable and accounts receivable, that they know what they're contributing to. You know, and they may not be the scientists, they may not be the chemists, they may not be the engineer that's actually building this stuff, but they are contributing to the organization being successful and moving that forward. So that all plays into answer what you probably thought was a pretty easy question earlier, the motivation issue. Because when people contribute to something greater than themselves, that's intrinsic motivation. So if we as employers, we create that environment and we keep that in the forefront of what we're doing, where we're going, what we're building, and the people that come to us say, I want to sign up to be part of that. That's where the two meet. So that's the employee's responsibility is to make sure that what resonates with their heart and soul connects with what we're doing as an organization and that those two meet in the middle. Right, bro. You have put it very, very well. Now, two, three things here. One uh, is that you talk about two universal, top universal employee complaint. You talk one about micromanagement. What is the other one? The other one is lack of direction. And that's where I was just talking about the vision. There's, there's so many complaints when I talk to people at social events and so on. These are the top two complaints that I hear, micromanagement and lack of direction. And maybe sometimes you'll hear employees talk about the squirrel syndrome. It's like we're chasing something new every day or the shiny object syndrome. Like every day there's a different priority and you know we, we don't have any focus on what we're doing. And so providing direction is critical to employees. Those are, like I said, those are top two complaints, micromanagement and lack of direction. Well, when we focus on results, which was the number one responsibility, that's part of, that's one of the steps of providing direction. But as the further up you go in the organization, that gets into the vision. What are we trying to accomplish? Where are we going? And what's my piece of that puzzle? What's my contribution to making that happen? So that's the, that's the providing direction part. And that's why I say when, as we get higher up in the organization, that vision or that capacity to translate vision into reality is so much more important because it provides direction to the employee. Right, Bob, right. Now you talked about good leaders, what they should be and you know what, how they should give uh, go for the vision, how they should deal with their employees. The big problem is that where do we get the, uh, such leadership from? Because it's not happening. Should we, uh, are we getting it? Or should we look at business schools? Should we look at the man on the street? Because at the end of the day, we have got so many uh, business schools all over the world. Best practices, 
so many books written, uh, millions of articles written, thousands and lakhs of books written. You can find them on Amazon. And still the amount of problem that we are, you know, getting at workplaces, that does say a lot about how leadership uh, and work culture is developing in every place related to employees. And, you know, even recently we got all those things about, I'll not name the company, but when you ask people by report, uh, by telling yes or no by 5 p.m. and then people have to decide where they want to because it's going to be a hard place to work. So everybody may have the re main reason. CEOs are also under a lot of pressure. They have a lot of, you know, numbers to meet. But then we are talking about leadership here. Who is a leader? Where do we find such leadership? And how do we move forward from the present times when we are facing this great resignation issue, the quiet quitting, and also, as you said, even middle-level uh, organizations, mid-sized organizations, their people are give, able to give better direction and able to take their vision forward. Why is it that big places are actually, their hearts are becoming smaller? Several questions at the same time, Bob, but this is to leave you so that, you know, you can answer at your own pace. Okay. Well, I think that there's three parts, and hopefully I'll remember all three parts uh, as I as I get through those. So you talk about business school. Okay. And as you mentioned earlier, I went back to school at age 52, got my bachelor's degree, and my master's degree. The benefit of getting my college education later in life is that I had life experience to relate everything I was learning that I could relate to those life experiences. So when I'm reading my textbooks, when I'm doing the, the classroom exercises, I have these memories and I go, oh, wow, that is exactly what happened in the workplace last year or last month or five years ago. And it starts to have greater meaning and it stuck with me better. Whereas if I would have gone through that exact same, uh, those exact same classes back when I was 19, 20 and 21 years old, when I had no work experience, I had no life experience, they would have just been words in a book. So I think that business school is great, but later in life. And that's where as an employer, a lot of employers have tuition reimbursement. And so if your employees don't have their degrees, Make sure they get it because to me, it's so much more valuable later in life because they can relate it to that life experience and it has so much more meaning that they can apply that they can apply in the workplace. That's how I wound up going back to school. My employer had a tuition reimbursement program. As it turned out, they paid for 80% of my bachelor's degree and they paid for 100% of my master's degree. And that was kind of an unusual situation. The circumstances worked out that way, but it was so much more valuable to me because everything had so much more meaning. Now, in the classes that I teach, I, uh, there's a class that um, one of my colleagues teaches, and he's got this Venn diagram, and it's got characteristics of a leader and a characteristics of manager, and then kind of what overlaps between the two in the Venn diagram. At the top left circle, the very first one in the leadership part says vision, and then there's a whole list of characteristics. And Every time he presents that Venn diagram, he asks the students, list the characteristics you see up on this Venn diagram of that are consistent with some of the best leaders that you've ever had. And nobody ever says vision. And I think why that is, is because they've never or rarely seen it mentored in the workplace. Because we're so busy meeting our sales numbers and so busy doing the management part and, and the systems part and so on that we really don't have a direction of where we're going as an organization. And that's where I think when, when people see that, they don't 
they don't recognize it. They don't call it out as a characteristic of a great leader that they have experienced in their past. And the same sort of thing you mentioned on Amazon. If you search for leadership books on Amazon, I think last time I checked, there's over 60,000 responses. If there's over 60,000 leadership books out there, how could we be having poor leadership? You know, how could our employees be doing the great resignation because we're not follower focused or, or what you say, people centric focused? Well, all of our, what I see in the best-selling leadership books, and I've read a lot of them, is they are so focused on the in um, the interpersonal relationship between the leader and the follower, being vulnerable, being empathetic, and all of these interpersonal characteristics. And I don't diminish these in value at all because they are critically important. But and some of them will occasionally mention that a leader needs to have vision. But it's rare, but some some of them do. But I think the vast majority, when people read these leadership books and they get to that part about vision, they've never seen vision mentored in the workplace. So they don't really know what it means. They don't have anything to relate it to. So they just skip right over it. And I think that's part of the what's missing in leadership is having leaders that have a vision of where we're going, what we're trying to accomplish, and getting everybody on board with that vision and keeping them tied to what their contribution is to that. I had five different police police chiefs that I worked for, and one of them, I can say, let me back up, all five of them, very nice people. Just people you absolutely loved, you adored, you felt you know personal relationships with them, very kind people. But one of them was a great leader. And that one leader had a vision and got everybody in the organization inspired by that vision. And so when I look back on my experience with that one leader, basically 20% of the leaders that I worked for in my career, it was great because he had that vision and he got everybody inspired by it. And, and we all loved coming to work. We didn't have turnover. We didn't have any trouble recruiting people at that time. But then we get another leader who doesn't have vision and it kind of goes back to the squirrel syndrome, the shiny object syndrome and goes back to the, back to that way. And then we start losing people. We have turnover issues. We have trouble hiring people and so on. So I, to answer your question, AG, I think that that's probably the biggest thing that we lack is focusing on the vision of the organization. Where are we going? What are we trying to accomplish? And that's why my definition of leadership of a good leader is someone who has the capacity to translate vision in the reality. And I think that's what we're really missing. Right, right. So let's talk about vision, Bob. Uh, who provides the vision? Is it the promoters? Is it the CEO? Because a lot of the CEOs are themselves employees and several of them, as soon as they join, they are either looking at, uh, at, at moving on to a bigger company or perhaps even a bigger role. So and or also, I will tell you with my so many years, more than two decades of media experience, many want to be become thought leaders in the media without having any thought. <laughs> with articles written by someone else. So how do you do that? I, I'm telling you, this is when we need to find a solution, you need to find, uh, look at the problem itself. So where do you get that time? Secondly, if you talk of startups, very good people, young people, but many of them, they are, they are looking at building a unicorn. Initially, a lot of them talked about, uh, talk about, you know, building, bringing solutions. And then they look at about selling, getting some funding and also then about selling out. Where is the vision? Where do you give the employee a vision in these circumstances? And big organizations, established organizations, some of them, they may be good, 
but they have their own issues. That is where this whole concept of, you know, the great resignation and quiet quitting is happening. So how do you look at this whole situation where we have got millions of thought leaders, but where there is less leadership happening? And those people, how, how do you balance all these things together with the larger aspect of vision as well as employee motivation? Well, so the vision should start from the CEO. Now, the, the CEO may not have a perfectly polished vision, but should have a, a really strong idea of where they're going in the organization. But it's always better to have the people around you help you polish that. Now, there's, uh, and I'll use the example from Simon Sinek's uh, TEDx Tech talk that he did here in the Puget Sound area. And in his TEDx talk about why, getting to the why of what we do, he talked about the law of diffusion of innovation. And he talked about your innovators and your early adopters and then the early majority. And he talked about a tipping point. And so when you're working on your vision, and, and like I say, the CEO should have a pretty good idea of where they need to take the organization, but getting, getting that vision polished and refined can take help of multiple people. And that's where you want to get the people in your organization that are, that are those, those innovators and those early adopters. And that's what I call your informal leaders in your organization. Get them involved in the process because your innovators, those are the ones that are along. It doesn't matter what you say. They're going to, they're going to be along for the ride. The early adopters are the ones that, that are kind of that way, but they still need some guidance in essence or some influence to get them on that train. Uh, but at the same time, when you get these people involved, that's what I call part of the 12 foot rule. Whenever you've got an issue going on in your organization, rather than just solving it from the executive suite is get people that are within 12 feet of that problem to be part of the solution. And when you do that, what I call the 12 foot rule, you get those people in, in, involved, that's employee engagement. And particularly because they do it every day, they're going to have the best idea of what's going to work. And then it, when you implement that, they're going, I contributed to the solution. They do listen to what I say. I do have value here. And that is going to keep them engaged in the workplace. And so that the vision, it has to start at the top, but it doesn't, it's not isolated at the top. And that's where I say you need the people around you and uh, get those early adopters and those innovators, those informal leaders in your organization involved in that also, because then once you have refined it and once you have polished it, and now you're ready to publicize it, your innovators and your early adopters have already been selling the idea in the lunchroom and around the water cooler and out in the workplace. I mean, so your, your new process has gotten momentum. But the interesting thing is we bring in new CEOs all the time because the board or the organization they want something to be different. They want something to change. They weren't getting the results. Sorry to, interrupt, sorry to interrupt you, Bob. But that is also the problem because uh, if they always think of the bottom lines of the profits, then where do you where do they focus on the vision? Because every time they will be thinking about, about the pressure from the board. It is not that CEOs are bad people. It's just that leadership requirements in today's organizations are different. And a lot of things are expected from the CEO. So amidst all these things, how do they balance all these things together in terms of profits, in terms of answering to the board, as well as looking at motivating the employees through actual leadership and not just by management? 
Well, you hit the nail on the, on the head right there, AJ, because so often, and I, I just a few months ago, I was having a conversation with a CEO and they were asking me to come in to help them develop a new vision statement, a new mission statement. And so I asked him, I said, so when you got hired by the board, did they give you any direction of what they want? And he kind of goes, make more money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's the wrong focus. The focus is on whatever product you're, suppl you're supplying, whatever service you're supplying, that you're filling a niche, that you do it so well that the, the profit's the byproduct, is that you do it so well, because if you're focusing on the profit, you're, you're, you're lost. I just lost my ink pen over my shoulder there. You're, you're just lost. You can't solely focus on the profit. You've got to focus on what are we doing and, and doing it better than anyone. And particularly when you look at the, the products we create, we want to make them the best products available. And you can use that in your recruitment processes that if you come to work for us, that means you're the best of the best because that's all we hire is the best. Or you have the potential to become the best of the best because that's all we hire. And when we focus on being the best, where, you know, when the, when the customer out there in the market has, a, has an option, they come to you because they get the best service. I mean, I, I recently just changed my medical coverage and I had options of, of different groups, but there, and there was one that was going to cost me a little bit of money to go with this one, but I went ahead and paid the money because I had experience with them and I got great service from them. So I was willing to pay a little more to get that great service because they provide a great product. So it wasn't, you know, it's not a, to the customer. Obviously, it's not about dollars and cents. I mean, if, if that's your vision statement on the wall, we're here to make as much money as possible. How many customers want to work with you? <laughs> you know, yeah. But if you're going to build great products, give great service, then they want to work with you. So you got to make sure your focus is in the right place. But the, the problem is, like you were saying, AJ, so many places have a vision statement and it's framed and it's put on the wall, but it has no meaning in day-to-day -day work life. It was just like there was a checklist of things we need to do. Oh, we need a vision statement. We need a mission statement. Check, check. That's done. And they move on with the shiny object syndrome. Of this again, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt yep. you again. Please when do. companies have a vision statement, you see a lot of the retrenchment or, you know, fighting that is happening today of employees by big organizations making so many news, so much of news, whether you take it any name of all the, you, you know, the big, uh, big, big data companies and all that stuff. They say it was during COVID we started thinking that, you know, this business environment has changed and it will remain the same in future. And then because it did not turn out, it is my fault. That's the CEO's thing. It is my fault. But we have to let go of 10,000 employees, 11,000 employees and more to come. Where did the vision go? Because their vision was something else just before COVID. Does a company, does a COVID change your vision? Or does it change your strategy? Well, I, and I would say absolutely, because the environment is constantly changing. So I've got a segment in the training that I do. It's all about systems. And when we, when we have the systems in our organization on, on, you know, systems or procedures, we have to watch trends. We have to watch what's changing. And if our environment's changing, well, you know, we've got to change along with it. So in fact, it was just, I think it was two weekends ago, I was hearing a gentleman talk about uh, the comparison between Blockbuster, the, the video store. I don't know if you had them in India or not. They were 
uh, all across the U.S. and I think over more most of North America. But they were a, a DVD store where you would go to the store and you'd rent a movie, you know, then you had to bring it back, you know, a couple of days later, get another one and so on. And then Netflix came out when and this was before streaming. So Netflix, they would mail the DVD to your home and mail it back when you want. There were no late fees. And you could actually even go online and you could make a list. These are the next 10 movies that I see. So as soon as I send you back one DVD, send me the next one on my list. Well, even at Blockbuster, they were going, customers like this. They like this business model. We should change our business model. But the executive suite at Blockbuster is like, no, we're not going to do that. You know, we've got our model. We're going to stick with it. And they're all out of business now. You know, so the environment was changing what customers were able to realize. And now you've got into the streaming aspect. You don't even get DVDs anymore now. You know, Netflix is doing all the streaming and all the other networks are trying to catch up to that. So you have to be aware of the changing environment. Our environment is constantly changing. In business school, I remember they said there's two types of businesses, those that are changing and those that are going out of business. <laughs> so you have to change. Right. And so it's even like if you have a plan to build your custom dream home. You put together a construction plan, and as you're building it, you're going to have change orders. Things are going to change. Right. You might have supply issues. You might have adverse weather that delays things, uh, or your plan didn't work out as perfect. You know, you, once you start building, you realize, oh, this door turns into that hallway and it blocks this access, so we got to change that. So you have change orders. Things change. Even if you put together the best laid plan, you have to monitor it and expect that it's going to change. Right, Bob. But your plan still is of a dream home. When you talk of a business, you always think about a solution. You talk about customers. You don't, for the sake of a business strategy, you just don't change the vision. Vision is like the constitution. You can bring in an amendment, but you don't change the constitution without a, that much of a requirement. I would like to put it that way. And, and I think that's reasonable as long as the vision still has validity. Right. You know, Absolutely. If, if, Absolutely. Yeah, obviously, you know, if if the market has changed so much, you know, and that's part of what leadership is, you come to the fork in the road, you go, do we go this way? Or do we go that way? And leadership has to decide, we're going to go this way. Now, did they always make the right choice? No, I remember years and years ago, my first wife, she worked for a digital equipment corporation. This was at the same time Microsoft was just beginning also. So the CEO of digital equipment corporation, he was all about mainframe computers and dummy terminals. He didn't see any reason for a PC. And he said, people won't, don't need computers in their homes. Yeah, you know, the future of computing is a mainframe computer with dummy terminals. Well, in the Bill Gates vision was a computer on every desktop, whether it's in your home or in the workplace. Two completely different visions. And we know which one survived right. and which one right. didn't. Right. So, you know, even though you've got a vision, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right one to meet the market. And I think that there was an opportunity when Digital Equipment Corporation could have recognized that people prefer the PC. <laughs> Maybe we should change right. court, but right. they never did. And they went out of business. Right. Right. Got it. You balance it well, except that my, my thought process is that uh, you have to evaluate, keep on evaluating your vision where you want to reach. And accordingly, you keep on taking your uh, steps. And uh, whenever there is a new thing coming on, you be prepared for it. That's the job of, you know, a leadership, uh, a, a nice leader or a CEO. Now, moving from this particular thing, if one is a leader in today's time, how does he or she uh, evaluate whether there is a leadership gap? And actually, you know, that needs to be filled. Everybody does not have that, uh, that sort of a capacity or a manpower or a consultant like you 
who can help them. So how do they, uh, it's like self-diagnostics. How do you do that and find it out? Well, you mean with the internet? I can even help people in India. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we'll come, yeah, we will certainly come to that, obviously. About yeah, your- absolutely. Uh, you know, I think the first part, you know, and this is a, a very big characteristic of a good leader is humility. You know, is recognizing you don't know it all. In fact, I was just mentioning to my class last week, everybody you meet knows something you don't know. And that was actually a saying by a, a TV personality here in, in the uh, United States. But it's very true. And I think about it that way is that everybody I meet knows something I don't know. I don't know at all. I mean, I've learned a lot and I can, you know, I can um, help shorten the learning curve for many uh, leaders moving forward so that they don't have to do what I did, spend decades of experience, six years in college and, you know, doing a little sinking, a little swimming and trying to figure it out. I can help you avoid all of that and shorten your your learning curve. Um, but I think the first key is the humility, because I, I, I have literally had chief executives come through my course and they will sit in the class with their arms folded and they kind of lean back like, you can't teach me anything. I already know everything. <laughs> I'm like, then why are we here? You know, I, and I feel so sorry for that organization because an organization that has a leader that thinks they know everything, in my opinion, they're doomed. So humility is, is huge, you know, and even if you just walk away with one golden nugget, that that one golden nugget of information improves things, then that was valuable. That was an, uh, that was a valuable golden nugget to learn about. So I, I, to me, that's the biggest characteristic is if we can have more leaders that have humility to, you know, get feedback and recognize that, you know, you have room for improvement too. And to learn from those around you and, and from the coaches now, um, yeah, it's, it's in short supply. And I, and this is why I do what I do because I have learned that so many people in the workplace, good leadership isn't being mentored in the workplace. Now I will say the people in those positions, they're doing the best with what they know how to do. They just don't know what they don't know. And so if that's, if you've only worked in one company and that's all you've ever seen as far as leadership, then when you get promoted to replace them, you're going to basically do what they did. And you're going to repeat that cycle. Even though they were well-intentioned people, they just didn't find other resources to help them become better. And that's where executive coaching, leadership training, uh, you know, particularly now as we've gone through COVID and, and we've all learned how to use Zoom. I mean, we can reach out any, you know, basically anywhere where there's an internet connection. And we can start providing this. And, and it's not that I have all the answers. In fact, I even tell my classes, I what I'm doing is I'm putting kindling in your leadership bucket so that you can start your own leadership fire. I want you to go out there and challenge the status quo. And I want you to challenge the scripts in your, in your industry with the things that you've been doing over and over and over again. Evaluate those. Should we still be doing that? And the reality is most times, no, we should be going a different direction. And that's one of the things that I do in my classes is I challenge these young leaders to challenge that status quo. Don't just keep doing stuff because you've done it for five or 10 years. You know, look at doing things differently. Think outside the box. You know, it's uh, and I forgot the gentleman's name. He calls it moonshot thinking, you know, because when um, America first went to the moon in the 60s, right. they didn't even have the technology to do that. So I was definitely thinking outside the box. And that's what I challenge these young leaders to do is avoid the scripts and think outside the box, challenge the status quo and do something different moving forward to make your organization better and for you to become a better leader. And more importantly, for you to develop those that come up behind you so that they will be better leaders and better influencers. Right. And to tell them what they don't know 
whether they know or not, how, how do they connect with you? Because you are the expert of this particular thing. You can see things that a lot of leaders, a lot of uh, managers, they are not able to look at. How do they connect with you? What is the best way to connect with you? Well, I would love to connect with anybody in your audience that would like to learn more. But before they connect with me, what I'd like to ask them to do is whatever platform they're watching this broadcast or listening to this podcast right now, stop, click the subscribe button and add a comment about the value you got out of this episode. So click that subscribe button or follow this channel, whichever platform you're watching. And then once you do that, then you can contact me on LinkedIn. You've got my name on the screen, Bob Wolverton, super easy to find. And uh, my company is toptierleadershiptraining.com. And so those two are probably the best resources to get a hold of me. But don't reach out to me until you subscribe to ADA's channel. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bob. That's, that's very kind of you. Uh, that's indeed very, very uh, kind. Matter of fact, uh, I may even ask if they say they heard me on your show. Uh, first question I'll ask them is, did you subscribe or did you follow? Did you leave a comment? <laughs> that's very kind of you indeed. Uh, now about the book you, you have written, the part of leadership no one talks about. How? What is it about and how do people buy it? Where do they buy this book? Well, the book is available on Amazon. It's no longer in print. It's, there's some used copies that are available out there, but the Kindle version and the Audible version are still available uh, on there. However, I will tell, I will, and here's my humility uh, going into place. So I also belong to the National Speakers Association. And I don't know, it was probably three or four months ago, we had the National Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm talking to other speakers who have also written a book. And I was telling them how I wasn't satisfied with my first book. And they go, oh, yeah, the first book's always terrible. I said, yep, that's that's my book right there. So I'm not even encouraging anybody to buy the book right now because I'm going to write a second edition that I think will be so much better. And I'm going to add a, a component that's not in this first book. The new, the new book is going to have a section on ethical decision-making in the workplace, because I think that's another huge gap that we miss uh, when it comes to leadership is uh, ethical decision-making and preventing uh, what I call career-ending behaviors. So keep just keep your eyes open, um, put it on your wish list or whatever, so when the second edition comes out, you'll get the better version of the book. Absolutely. And we'll, be, we'll certainly talk about it uh, on, on the podcast, for sure. Now, Bob, my last question to you is, see, you have covered your journey from RoboBob to, to that comment on LinkedIn by one of your co-workers, by your colleague, is one of the best leaders that I ever had the privilege of working. A lot of people are not able to traverse this journey and they live with a lot of regret. They may be good, man, good managers, management in high positions, but they are now that you have achieved it after a lot of you know effort and everything, I'm sure it's a life fulfilled in a certain way. Now, where and you already coach a lot of people. Now, where from here? You have already accomplished so, so much. You were into the police for so many years. Uh, you were uh, now you are a coach, leadership coach, executive coach. You have already achieved uh, the whole purpose of going for more education at 50 plus years and you have got that whole acknowledgement as a leader where do you want to go from here what is your next purpose <laughs> well at my age i'm rapidly running out of time <laughs> you are not you are not organizations are running out of time <laughs> no what, what i will say is my passion right now is helping people learn 
how to be good leaders. And like I said, I just had a 40 hour class last week. And when people leave the class on Friday and they are inspired to go back to their organizations and make positive changes, that's what inspires me. I absolutely love that feeling uh, that I'm helping other people and where I am right now, that's all, that's all that I want to do. I'm not going to be able to do this for a whole lot of another years. I mean, I hope that I can do it, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes, but that's what inspires me right now. You know, I had a very inspirational career uh, in law enforcement. I absolutely loved what I did. And, uh, but I got to the point, like I need to go and provide value somewhere else. And that's what inspires me is providing value in other organizations where people want to become better leaders, but I don't want everybody to do like I did and take decades to learn it and spend six years in college and stuff. I want to help you be effective right away. And then as particularly prepare you for the executive suite so that you can be even a better executive when you uh, get to that level that in essence, you can translate that vision and reality, know how to do that and inspire the people that come to work for you because that's what keeps them coming back. That'll re That'll reduce your employee turnover, which we know is really, really, really expensive. I mean, even the lowest estimate, every time you lose an employee, you're looking at $100,000. And in most cases, probably more than $200,000 of lost investment. And if you've lost an employee that's worked for you for seven years, you've had seven years of institutional knowledge and investment in that person, and they walk out the door because of bad leadership, that's a huge loss to your organization. And so we've got to improve the leadership so that we don't lose that investment in that employee and have them go somewhere else. So that's what inspires me to help people prevent that turnover and for them to become better leaders and for them to start feeling like I've got this handle. And then hopefully when I'm ready to play golf every day of the week, then they can start doing this and they can help other people become better leaders. So that's what inspires me, AJ, to answer your question. On this note, it's a wrap on this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much, Bob, for coming on to the show. Thank you, AJ. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't believe it's been almost an hour already. Like I said, I can talk about this forever. <laughs>